you are a member here, I know you take probably a lot of this for granted. If you're a visitor, you probably take none of it for granted because you don't see it very often. But Calvary Baptist Church is a friendly place. Have you noticed that? And I commend you for that. Don't ever let that change. It is a blessing and an honor and a delight to be here. My heart has been stirred already by the presence of the Lord, I believe, already in this place and the anticipation on the part of God's people. Well, I've got a lot on my heart I want to share with you, and I'll not unload all of it this morning, all right? I'll save a little bit for tonight, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, though I'd love to share it all today. But let me say this. I thank God for that flag, don't you? Back in 1976, the 200th anniversary of America's birthday, my dad had a choir come to our church on the 4th of July, which happened to be that year, uh, on a Wednesday evening to do a 4th of July celebration, and they sang a song about the flag. I've never heard it since. I'd never heard it before. There's a quirk of my mind. If it's in poetry form or if it's in poetry and set to music, I'm doomed. I'm going to remember that the rest of my life. And I heard this in 1976, sitting there on the front row, was thinking about it, never forgotten it. Can, can I quote it to you? Proudly she waves, O glory, over the land of the free, promise of hope and freedom, symbol of liberty. Red, white, and blue are her colors, colors both brilliant and clear, colors with far deeper meaning than that at first may appear. Red is for blood of patriots who have died to free us. White is for justice and government of law. Blue is for honor and faith in all we do. This is my flag. This is, oh glory, the red, white, and blue. Folks, I don't know about you. Even if I'm at a football game or if I'm watching one on TV, I've started doing something. All two weeks ago, three weeks ago, rather, when I was at our camp in Washington State, every morning they had a flag raising and every evening they had a flag lowering and I was not able to get to all of both of those every day. But from my cabin, when I heard the national anthem preacher, I stood up in my cabin, put my hand over my heart and I pledged my allegiance to the flag. You say, preacher, that bothers me that you do that. I'm not that patriotic. Well, can I say this? If patriotism and my patriotism offends you, can I say this? If you'll come to me and apologize for how you feel after the service, I'll forgive you. I promise I really will. Uh, we ought never apologize for being patriotic, freedom-loving Americans. God has blessed America in a great way, and I'm so thankful for that. And uh, I will tell you one final thing as I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the book of James chapter number 4, if you would, please. Uh, you are listening this morning to a jailbird. You say, Preacher, what do you mean by that? Uh, let me explain. Back on January 6th of this year, I had the opportunity to be in Washington, D.C. How many of you know what happened on January 6th? Boy, a lot of lies told about what happened on January 6th. But we arrived early that day and uh, walked over a mile from where we parked our car all the way down to the White House stood in line there uh, for just a brief amount of time, and then people converged all around us, and I've never stood in such a crowd. I heard somebody say 45,000 people were gathered there. Let me say this. The ellipse of the White House, which is the backyard of the White House, that will accommodate almost 100,000 people. It was completely full all the way across from there over to the Washington Monument, which is the 555-foot-tall monument dedicated to our first president, George Washington. And then from there, one solid mile all the way down from the Washington Monument to the Lincoln Memorial. And according to the United States Park Service, with whom we have done lots of dealings and had lots of relationships there through our crusades on the National Mall that we have done. 
they told me, Dave, you can literally put a million people from the Washington Monument one mile down to the Lincoln Memorial. And as I stood out in Constitution Avenue, a considerable distance away from the ellipse, because it was already full up, held my camera up, turned it this way, snapped a picture. Preacher, it was literally jam-packed with people for one mile from the Washington Monument all the way down to the Lincoln Memorial. So I am conservatively stating there were about 1.1 to 1.2 million people there on January 6th. I stood there, folks, no kidding, for about six hours. And preacher, it was, I would have been claustrophobic had it not been for the nature of the people that were there. It was amazing. But I literally was so packed tight together. If I'd have died, I'd have stood up dead for six hours. I'm not joking about there was no place to fall. People dropped their gloves. It was cold that day. People dropped their gloves. There was no way for them to bend down and get to their gloves. Do you know for six hours, we didn't have one argument with anybody? There wasn't one fight. There wasn't one disagreement. You know what we did for six hours? We fellowshiped together, got to know people from other parts of the United States of America. We sang God Bless America together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It was absolutely amazing. And then at 1.12, the President of the United States concluded his speech, and I snapped a picture as he walked off the platform, looked at my phone, still time-stamped on there to this day, 112 as he dismissed us to walk toward the Capitol for a peaceful and patriotic protest. And that was the words he used. So I told my brother and I told his son who was with me, I said, look guys, let's don't go up Constitution Avenue. Let's go up onto the National Mall, uh, up on the Capitol side of the Washington Monument. Let's walk down the grass or the, the graveled areas on either side of the grass. And that way we can get to the Capitol a little more quickly. As soon as we got up on what's formerly called the National Mall, as you look toward the Capitol building, I heard and saw the first of four explosions. I mean, literally you could see puffs of smoke. Something was already going on up around the Capitol building and we started to bypass all of that and just go around the outside and go to our car. I'm glad I didn't because of what has ultimately transpired. We made our way to the West Plaza of the Capitol building. By the way, I know every inch of the West Plaza like I know the back of my own hand because every year we do a Bible reading marathon on the West Plaza. It's been going on for 29 years. So I know every inch of that area. So when we got up there, there were fights going on. There were people I found out later that had broken into the Capitol building by the way, we were dismissed at 112. Everybody now knows the timeline. The breaking into the Capitol occurred at 20 minutes to 1. Are you hearing me? We were dismissed, about 1.2 million of us, at 112 in the afternoon. The incursion into the Capitol began about 32 minutes prior to that. Is everybody listening to what I'm saying? What I'm trying to tell you, folks, is this we've been lied to in America. When we got up there, I noticed a guy ran behind me, Pastor, with a large rope, like a tow rope that you'd tow a vehicle with another vehicle with, and he ran behind me, and that's very odd to see anything like that uh, anywhere around the Capitol building. It's just not the norm, and somebody had to drive by out on the highway, hand that to him, and he ran through the crowd, and I heard him yell this, come on, this is our moment. 
And I said to my brother, I said, where's that guy going and what in the world is he going to do with that rope? So we kind of went through the milling crowd that had gathered there on the West Plaza. He was tying that to a banister or a barricade that separated the crowd from some of the national uh, police or the Capitol Police or the U.S. Capitol Police. And I know many of those guys in the Capitol Police. They're our friends. He's going to pull this barricade over and they're going to push past, at least that's his tent, push past all of the U.S. Capitol Police. And at that point, I'm just going to be honest with you folks, I lost it and I yelled at the top of my lungs what are you doing and he looked at me and he said we're going to pull this barricade over this is our moment I said if you're trying to make a positive statement that's not the way to do it and behind me a guy I didn't see standing behind me unleashed a string of profanity that would make a sailor blush so I'm trying to keep my eye on him so I don't get sucker punched watching this guy over here it's just my brother and I and another fellow trying to stop these guys who by the way were anarchists is everybody listening to me totally different than the people that were a mile away for six hours at the White House enjoying a rally. Trying to watch the guy behind me watching that guy. Thank God for American teenagers. Can I hear an amen right there? Two African-American teenage boys stepped up to help me and my brother who are both 62 years of age now. Uh, They stepped up to help us, and with the uh, stepping up of them to help, those guys tying that rope around that barricade were discouraged from doing so, and they untied it, and I thought they were going to leave. They didn't actually leave. They went down all the way down on the end where the barricade stretched this direction, decided to tie it around that portion of the barricade where there was nobody guarding it, pull that over, which they ultimately did. And at that point, the U.S. Capitol Police, they had no, had no uh, other choice other than to do this. They unleashed some tear gas. And I'm just curious, how many of you have been around tear gas? Anybody ever been around that? Can I, now, they didn't aim the tear gas at us. They didn't aim it at those guys that overturned the barricade. But it was wafting through the air. And, of course, you know, and it was the wife of one of our Hope to the Hills. Well, there's been an incursion into the Capitol. I didn't even know that had happened yet. And um, I said, well, everything's peaceful around on this side of the Capitol, which at that time it was. Folk, all I'm trying to say is this. We were lied to, and I was asked to be on a national radio program and tell what I'd seen and what we experienced. And so to advertise for that on Facebook, I just merely put this little statement. I'm going to be on radio tomorrow. I'm going to be talking about the very peaceful protest at the White House. And preacher, all of that was true. It was a mile away, very peaceful protest at the White House. Now, what happened up at the Capitol? That's a whole different group of people that started that. Unfortunately, some people from the rally down at the White House did go through the broken down doors, about 400 of them, wandered around like tourists. Some of y'all saw the images of what they were doing. They should have never done that. I wasn't tempted to do that. I knew there'd be a price to pay for doing that. And some of those guys are suffering, you know, the penalty of unlawful entry, which they should. Can I hear an amen? They should. All of that to say this, though, the people that started that was not the people down at the rally. It just wasn't. Okay, I was there. Well, I said I'm going to be on talking about the very peaceful protests of the White Do you know Facebook censored me and put me in Facebook jail for 30 days? And the fact checkers that fact checked me weren't there. They weren't there. I was. But they fact checked yours truly. Put me in Facebook jail. So I'm a jailbird let out of jail right now. I want you to know that. So I'm going to preach for about three hours. No, I'm just joking. I'm not going to preach that. But I want you to understand something, folks. We've been lied to a lot. You understand what I'm saying? We have. We've been lied to a lot by some of the powers that be. And then over the last three weeks, I've watched with... I'm just going to say it, I've watched with anger, probably you have as well, at what happened with our 
exit from Afghanistan. Folks, that wasn't an exit. That was a retreat is what that was. That was a surrender is what that was. Uh, you don't get your military out first and then get your people out later. You get your people out first. You get your helpers, those that are Afghanis that helped us as translators and so on. You get them out next and you take your military out last. Can I hear an amen? That's how America has operated throughout our history. But not now. Something's changed in America. And I want to tell you something, folks. I, I'm, I'm standing here to say this revival may be the most important one that Calvary Baptist Church has ever had in its history. The time that we're standing in right now may be the most strategic time in your lifetime and mine, but not just that, in the history of the United States of America. Do you understand freedom is the default position of every human being? I don't have time to go into this, but let me just say this much before we turn our attention very briefly to the Scriptures. There's a thing that was used in British common law. It is something that the terminology was, was duplicated in America by the founders of this country. It's the phrase natural law, natural law. Now, that may not be familiar to you, but natural law is just a basic common understanding that certain things are right, certain things are wrong, certain things operate this way if other things are done. There's a result of choices here that that bring ramifications over here. It's called natural law. May I just say this? Sowing and reaping is an example of natural law. Everybody understand what I'm talking about? If you plant corn, you don't harvest carrots. Have you figured that out? You plant beans, you don't reap broccoli. Have you noticed that? If you plant corn, you get corn. You plant beans, you get beans. That's the way this works. Natural law. And the founders of our country understood the default position of every human being is they want to live in freedom. Now, not everybody gets to live in freedom because they have tyrannical leaders. But the desire of every human being born into the bosom, breathed into the heart and soul of every person that's ever been born is a desire to be free. A baby being born into this earth, into this world, is coming out of her womb with a desire to be free. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? So the founders of this country crafted two documents. A Declaration of Independence in the United States Constitution based on that understanding of natural law that the default position of human beings is to be free. We hold these truths, says the Declaration, to be self-evident. Preacher, we don't have to be taught this. This is self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these, not limited to these, but among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. When any form of government becomes detrimental to those ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and establish in its place new government predicated upon those principles that shall most securely procure their peace and happiness. Can I hear an amen right there? Wow. What I'm trying to say, folks, is this. What happened on Thursday of this week, and I'm not being political. What happened on Thursday of this week where Joe Biden said this, I am empowering, think of this, the Department of Labor, which is a bureaucratic agency. Nobody in this room, none of us in this room voted for anybody that works at the Department of Labor. It is a bureaucratic agency. Bureaucracies are those things which rise up around the function of government, not elected by the people. They just sort of show up and they begin exercising great authority over us. Nobody elected any of the people at the Department of Labor. 
But the president said, I'm empowering the Department of Labor to demand of companies and corporations that employ over 100 people that you have to take a vaccine or submit to a test every week. Folks, may I say this? Whether you choose to get a vaccine or not, that is your choice. Totally your choice. But you know what? It ought to remain a choice. I get concerned about the mandated portion of what's happening. It's your choice. Bless God. If you choose not to get the vaccine, praise the Lord. If you choose to get it, praise the Lord. We're going to love each other in the body of Christ. Can I hear an amen? That's not where the problem The problem is this mandated stuff. And what he did on Thursday, I am spitting fire out my mouth, out my nose. It's coming out my ears. My wife will tell you I was livid. He can't do this. The Constitution doesn't give him, the federal government, or anybody else the right to do what he just did, but he did it anyway. What is wrong with us that we're not more outraged? You say, preacher, it's going to be litigated in court. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Thousands of lawsuits will emerge from that. But for now, he's operating like King Joe. He's not a king. No, sir. No, man. He's not. This is grounds for treason. It is. By the way, we declared independence from George III king of Great Britain for less, less than what happened on Thursday. Read the declaration. Yes, repeated, repeated they said. George has repeatedly done what he's done. You know what? Taxation without representation. Repeated appeals to the king, all of which were ignored. Yes, it had happened repeatedly, but what happened in one fell swoop on Thursday was more egregious than that over which we declared independence from Great Britain. I'm trying to help you understand, folks, we're living in a strategic time. Now, I want you to look, if you would please, at James chapter number 4. And before we turn our attention to verse number 13, Pastor said it so well. I remember, like it was yesterday, where I was on September 11, 2001. We had driven all the way to the east, west coast rather, of the United States of America. We were ministering out there. It was a Tuesday, if you remember. It happened to be on a Tuesday, beautiful Tuesday morning, not a cloud in the sky out there, not a cloud in the sky certainly on the east coast of the United States of America. We had just held a men's conference on Friday and Saturday, and then Sunday I'd preached at a church there locally. Monday we just kind of relaxed a little bit. Tuesday I had to get the final speaker of the six speakers that we invited to that men's conference to the Portland, Oregon airport, get him through curbside check-in, you know, say my goodbye. He was going to make his way back to Texas. Well, sure enough, I drove him in my Ford F-350 pickup truck to the airport in Portland, about 20 miles from where we had our trailer parked. Got him through curbside check-in. Hugged him, embraced that brother. Said, brother, I love you. Thank you for coming so much. Praying for you. He turned to go into the airport. I came around, got in my vehicle, turned the radio on as I pulled out of the Portland airport. And the first words I heard that came over the radio were coming from the lips of our president, George W. Bush. And he said something like this. This was a deliberate terrorist act. Preacher, I'll follow the president's daily schedule. I did it even back then. I knew that day George W. Bush was scheduled to be in a classroom, elementary classroom in the state of Florida reading to some school-aged children. So when he said this was a deliberate terrorist act, I'm thinking he's talking about something that's happening overseas. Little did I know, but very quickly did I realize he's not talking about something overseas. He's talking about something that's happening yet ongoing right now in the United States of America. 
So, folk, I'm going to tell you, I broke the law that day. I pushed the accelerator to the floor. I got back the 20 miles to where our trailer was parked, ran inside. My wife was up vacuuming the carpet that morning, getting ready to start the school day because we homeschooled our children. I said, honey, shut down the vacuum cleaner. We pulled two chairs up in front of an 11-inch TV screen in our 40-foot fifth-wheel trailer, and we watched... It's two buildings, a north and south tower. By the way, I was up in the south tower in 1990. Preacher on the outside had a friend who took me there. You can see the curvature of the earth from the top of the south tower or could of the World Trade Center. It was an amazing thing. Now I'm watching both buildings. One hit higher, the north tower. Other one hit lower, the south tower. But both of them, smoke billowing out of both buildings. People jumping to their death. It was like a bad B movie. And then I thought, my friend is there. And I grabbed my cell phone, dialed a gentleman by the name of Niles Light. He was an FBI agent in the city, they call it, just New York City, the city, for 25 years, counterterrorism expert. I thought, man, he's there, he's there. So when I called on the first ring, his wife, Darlene, answered. I said, Darlene, this is Dave Kistler. I said, I'm watching everything going on in New York City. I'm just wondering, have you heard from Niles? She began to weep. She said, preacher, I haven't heard a word from him. I said, now look, Darlene, your husband's a smart man. He's incredibly savvy. He knows what he's doing. I'm sure he's fine, but let me do this. He's probably going to be calling you soon. Let me get off the phone, but before I do, let me pray. I prayed briefly, hung up. Before I hung up, I said this, Pastor, would you just let me know? I mean, just send me a te- something. Just somehow let me know that your husband is okay whenever you hear from him. She said, Preacher, I will. A little bit later that morning, I heard from their daughter, Carrie Light. She said a third party in the FBI called and said they've seen Daddy. Well, no, we've not talked to him, but they've seen him, and they say he is alive. Just want us to know that. By the way, now I'll survive that. But I sat down in his home, about a month after the 9-11 attack, and he laid about 200 pictures out on a coffee table. He said, Preacher, I want to show you my view of 9-11-01. He said, I was six blocks up from what we now call Ground Zero. He said, I was six blocks up at FBI headquarters. He said, when the first plane went in, we thought it was an accident. We thought it was a small, maybe single-engine plane. Veered off course because it's a beautiful day. No clouds, no weather issues to deal with. But when the second plane went in, we knew this was not accidental. It was deliberate. We were under attack. So he said, I told all the guys, six of us still remaining at FBI headquarters, six blocks up from Ground Zero. I said, guys, grab your FBI raid jackets, which are the blue jackets with the yellow FBI letters on the back. Grab them, get them on, get your weapons. We're going to walk the six blocks from FBI headquarters down to ground zero. He said, Dave, to a man, every one of those other agents had left their jackets in their car in the FBI parking garage. He said it took them 15 minutes to retrieve their jackets. He said that 15 minutes saved our lives. He said, because we're halfway down, three blocks down from the World Trade Center. And he said the South Tower began pancaking to the ground. Do you remember watching that? He said, I ducked into a doorway literally ducked into a doorway to avoid what looked like an atomic explosion coming up the street of dust and debris. And he said, I stood in the doorway until all of that rushed past me. And then he said, I stepped out and as the smoke began to somewhat clear, he said, I took a camera out of my pocket. He said, I pointed it toward the remaining tower that was standing, the North Tower, and I began snapping pictures. He said, these are them. Folks, I looked at pictures. He said, Dave, I counted that day over 200 of them that jumped from the 84th floor, from the 102nd floor, from the 104th floor. He said, Dave, do you know why they chose to die by falling instead of dying by fire? I said, no, sir, I don't. He said, over 2,000 degrees of temperature 
from that JP1 fuel, which I understand is some kind of a diesel derivative that they burn in those jets. He said that JP1 fuel that erupted, he showed me one picture. He said, preacher, look at this. He said, see that shiny substance that looks like it's lining the outside corner of the North Tower that's still standing? He said, that is that fuel burning so hot, it's going past the tensile strength of the steel and the steel is actually melting and running down the outside. He said, preacher, that fuel ran down elevator shafts, soaked carpet. He said, it was an inferno in that building. That's why they chose to die by falling instead of to die by fire. He said, Dave, have you ever wondered what it sounds like when a human body falls from 104 floors up? Hits the ground. He said, Dave, we know, we can calculate. We know that by the time a person falls from that far, by the time they hit the ground, they're traveling at over 150 miles an hour. We know that. I said, man, that's fast. He said, it is. But he said, it's not so fast that you would pass out on your way down. He said, what I'm trying to tell you, unless some of those people that jumped had a heart attack, he said, what I'm trying to tell you, they were alive and conscious till the final second. He said, I used to think a body falling that far hitting the ground would sound like maybe a watermelon hitting the ground. He said, that's not what it sounds like at all. He said, I heard over 200 of them. He said they sound like little mini explosions going off as people jump to their death. And preacher, that act was committed by 19 Islamic terrorists. Islamic terrorists. Preacher, don't call them it. They were as Islamic ideology was behind that. We do nobody any favors by not calling it what it was. And who perpetrated the act? Now, not every Muslim is going to be a terrorist, but every one of those terrorists have been Muslim. Can I hear an amen? Everybody understand what I'm saying? He said, Dave, I watched them. He said, I watched one guy trying to flee the World Trade Center, a body falling. He didn't see it coming. Fell right on top of him. He said, for the two weeks following that day, he said, I was out at the spot where they were taking all the debris from ground zero, out to another place and dumping it and sifting through it. He said, you could always tell, preacher, where body parts, remains were because the birds would land on those piles. And he said, we knew to go search there. And he said, for two weeks I sifted through debris and rubble looking for the remains of 2,977 innocent American people who died. Now, folk, all of that Moved me, as you can tell, and I'll never forget it. 20 years ago, yesterday. But I'll tell you what moved me more than any of that. Was that little stewardess pastor on flight 175. Now, Betty Ong, O-N-G, is the one that's gotten all the attention because there is a recording that the American public has heard of an air traffic controller talking to Betty Ong. Betty said, we've been hijacked and I think they've killed our pilot and co-pilot with sharp objects and the plane is flying erratically and we're flying very low. And you hear the conversation back and forth. Many of you have heard it. And finally you hear the air traffic controller going, Betty, are you there? Betty, are you there? Betty? The reason you don't hear from Betty is because The makeshift pilot flew the plane into the North Tower. The one that you've probably not heard is the one that flew the plane into the South Tower and the stewardess for American Airlines on Flight 175. I got the, I started to say privilege. It was a privilege in a way. It was an opportunity to hear that trans, 
not just transcription, though I read it, but to hear it live. Not Most of America has not heard this. But she dials, preacher, on one of the phones in the back of the plane where she was herded with all the other passengers. She dials American Airlines and talks to a superior, and she said, we've been commandeered, was her term, hijacked. And the guy at American Airlines says, can, can you see anything? And she must have ducked down and looked out one of those little portal windows that lined the plane on either side. And she said, all I see is water. And he said, well, look again. And she looked again and she said, all I see is... And she got ready to say water again. She stopped. And then, preacher, she screamed these words. Oh, my God! And then silence. What she was looking at was a plane flying across the Hudson River at low altitude. And she saw the buildings of New York and she realized, men we're flying way too low to be making a landing at LaGuardia or Kennedy Airport in New York. They're going to crash this airplane in one of those buildings. Oh, my God. And then silence. I've often wondered, brother, what did she mean by that? Oh, my God, I'm going to die, and I didn't plan on doing that today. Oh, my God, I'm going to die, and I'm not ready. Oh my God, I'm going to die and there's some people I'd like to apologize to for some things I've said. What did she mean? I don't know. But I want you to look at a verse of Scripture in light of what I've just shared with you from 20 years ago today or yesterday. And I want you to stay with me for just a couple of moments. Inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, James writes these words in verse 13 of chapter 4. Go to now. Ye that say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city, continue there a year, buy and sell and get gain. You say, Brother Kissler, what does that mean? Look up at me for just a moment. Go to now. It literally is a Greek phrase that means this. Hold on just a minute. Can I say it in modern vernacular? Cool, cool your jets. Cool your jets. Just a minute. Go to now. Slow down. Slow down just a minute. You that say, tomorrow we're going to do this and we're going to move into this city and we're going to set up our, our, our new residence and establish us a business. We're going to buy and sell and get gain. We're going to buy and sell and make ourselves a profit. Slow down just a minute. Why is James saying, slow down your planning? Look at the next verse. Here's the answer. Verse 14, whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. Man, folks, we don't know not only what tomorrow is going to hold, I don't know what the next five minutes is going to hold. And neither do you. Preacher, I feel totally healthy right now. I mean, I don't have anything that I know of wrong with me, but the fact is this, there could be something going on in my body and in the next five minutes or the next five seconds, I could drop dead. Are you listening to me? So slow down in your planning. You know not what's going to be on the morrow. Look at the next phrase. Great question. Verse 14. For what is your life? What a tremendous question. Here's the answer. It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Look at verse 15. For that ye ought to say. Here's what you ought to be saying. If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice. Look at the rest of it. In your boastings. And all such rejoicing is what? Verse 16 at the end. Evil. Folk, look at me. You know, you rejoice in your boastings. The word boastings literally means your arrogant assumptions. 
You rejoice. Preacher, all of us do this. We arrogantly assume we're going to have a today or tomorrow or a next week or next month or next year. We have uh, the assumption arrogantly made that that's going to happen. So we plan our vacations and we have to plan. We plan what we're going to do with our children. We plan what we're going to do as far as business and ministry strategy. And we all have to do that. But in one sense, that's a little bit of arrogance because we don't even know we're going to make it through the day, much less till next year. But James said you rejoice. In your boastings, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and we're going to go here and we're going to... You rejoice in your arrogant boastings and all such rejoicing is evil. Look at verse 17. Therefore, literally as a result of the fact that you don't know what tomorrow is going to hold, therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. Can I say to you folks, I have quoted this verse to many a teenager who said, you know, I hadn't been really obeying my mom and dad, hadn't been honoring them. And I'd quote James 4, 17, therefore to him that knoweth do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. And you know what it is? It is sinful not to honor your mom and dad. Can I hear an amen? You know, uh, I, I'm going I'm to disregard God and I'm going to make a choice on my own to do this or that. And I say, look, you know, therefore to him that knoweth to do good, doeth not to him and his sin. You know, it is sinful, preacher, to factor God out of your decision making. But can I say this? James 4, 17 has nothing to do with obedience to parents or decision making. It has to do with what we do with a four-letter word spelled T-I-M-E. If we know to do good with our time, that's the context. But we don't. We have sin. And folks, I want to submit to you this morning, we are all major offenders right there. 1,440 minutes you and I are given every day. That's how many minutes are in 24. 1,440 minutes. vast majority of those are spent sleeping by some people. I haven't slept in eight hours and I don't know when. All I'm trying to say, folks, is we sleep part of that 1,440 minutes. The rest of it, is given to us as a gift to invest. I believe for kingdom work. Now I want to do this very quickly and I'm done. I want you to look back at verse 14. What is your life? What is your life? What is your life? I want to talk to you very quickly about the time of your life. What are you going to do with it? And why should should you even consider for just a couple of minutes here? What you do with the time of your life, young people? Why why should you even stop long enough in your pursuit of pleasure? Why should you stop, sir, long enough in your pursuit of prosperity? Why should you stop, ma'am, long enough to consider what is my life? And what am I going to do with the time of my life? Well, James says there's three reasons you need to consider what you're going to do with the time of your life. Number one, life is fragile. Look at James 4.14. What is your life? Here it comes. Here's the first answer. It is even a, would you say it out loud? It is a what? Vapor. Literally the word vapor means mist. It is a mist. Growing up as a boy, my mom used to take a whistling tea kettle every morning. She'd put it on the back burner, right-hand back burner of the stove. She'd turn it wide open and she'd brew hot water for coffee. Dad would come into our bedroom. My brother and I, twin brother and I shared a bedroom. Thank God my brother's bed was the one closest to the door because he'd open the door. He'd look and say, boys, get up. If we didn't hit the floor immediately, he didn't give you a second warning. He just went over to the, to the sink. He grabbed himself a glass, ran some tap water into it, turned around, got a few ice cubes you know, out of the, the ice box and came in. And again, thank God my brother's bed was first. And the blood-curdling scream I heard as my dad poured ice water on my brother's face was the clue for me to get up and get my feet on the floor. Is everybody with you? 
we'd wander down the hallway toward the kitchen and every morning, growing up as a boy, right hand back corner, burner, here's the whistling tea kettle. And you know, as the water would begin to brew, out the spout of the tea kettle would begin to escape a mist, steam. And as it got hotter, it began to whistle as the mist. Preacher, I remember from 30 feet away, I thought, man, there's substance to that mist. I know this is stupid. You think, preacher, what in the world's wrong with you? I know I get that all the time. Anyway, can I say this? A guy asked me the other day, he said, what are you on? I said, what are you talking about? He said, you got so much energy. What are you on? I said, I'm not on anything, but I have figured this out. The Holy Spirit plus Mountain Dew equals awesome. I'm just telling you, it does. It does. I would wander down and I'd see this mist, five or six inches of mist, and I would think there's enough substance to it that I can grab some of that, put my hands around it and grab it. You know what? I walked over one morning, put my hands around that mist, tried to grab some, opened my hands up, and other than some moisture droplets, preacher, there was nothing there. It appeared to be more substantive than it really was. Do you know life's that way? It's a fragile thing. You can be healthy as we've learned over the last 18 months to almost two years. You can be healthy one minute and five days later, you can be in the grave. Does everybody understand? And by the way, that's not an excuse to live in fear. My brother told me this. He said, Dave, I hope you have got this figured out. He said, you're not getting out of this world alive. He said, I hope you figured that out. He said, we are all going to die of something if the Lord doesn't come back. Right? Do you know yesterday 3,950 people on average, excuse me, 3,750 people on average yesterday died in automobile accidents. Last year, preacher, 1.3 million people worldwide died in auto accidents. Hadn't heard one person say, don't drive. Or how about, I love this one, wear a mask while you drive. I'm not saying don't wear a mask, that's your choice. But it ought to remain a choice. And if you choose to wear one, you don't get mad at those that don't. If you don't, you don't get mad at those that do. Can I hear an amen? We love one another. Everybody with me? It's a choice. What I'm trying to say is if all we did for two years almost is focus on 3,750 people die every day and we calculated every day on the news, 3,750 more and just kept tabulating. You know what? You'd have been afraid to get in your car and drive to church today. But you know what? We don't tabulate that because we deem driving a car essential. You know what? Church is essential. Can I hear our name? Yes. And living life is essential. Living in paralyzing fear ain't living. It's surely not Christian living. And I'm not saying, preacher, you're going to stand out in the middle of the freeway and challenge an 18-wheeler. No, I'm not going to do that. I'll die. Faith is not foolishness, but faith sure ain't fear either. Listen, listen, folks, please. Life is fragile. If we've learned anything in the last 18 months or should have learned, it's this truth. Not only is life fragile, watch your Bible, James 4.14. What is your life? It's a vapor. Look at the next phrase. That appeareth for a little time. Number two, life is fleeting. Life is fleeting. Do you know literally little time? I'm not trying to impress you, but I want you to learn something. The two English words little time in Greek, it's the Greek word micron. Life is fragile, a vapor, a mist that appears for literally a micron. You know, we get the English word microbe, microscope, 
from the word micron. You know what a microbe is, a micron in Greek? It's an infinitely small speck of something that is so tiny it cannot be observed with the human eye. So it has to be enlarged under a vice called a microscope so you can actually see it. Is everybody with me? Do you know life down here, the 80 years, the 90 years, 101 years that my wife's granddad lived, the 90 years that my father-in-law lives and get ready to drive all the way to California at 90 years old? Can you believe that? If he walked in here today, you'd be hard-pressed to guess he's 60. He's amazing. But if he lives to be as old as his dad, 101, do you know that's an infinitely small speck compared to eternity? Life is fleeting. Fleeting. The 20 years from 01 to yesterday went faster than that. Wow. So why should I consider, Lord, you i got to give you the time of my life. Because life is fragile, life is fleeting. Look at the last one. End of James 4.14. What is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time and then does what? Would you say it out loud? Two words. Vanishes away. Literally, it's the Greek term for dissipates. It dissipates, just like a mist. You see it, and then it's gone. That's life. Now I want to make a statement and I'm done. I've heard it said all my life, death is final. Can I tell you, death doesn't end anything. No, death is not final, preacher. Life is final. Life is final. Death is not. You say, what do you mean by that? Death doesn't end anything. Death is just a doorway. It's a portal through which we will all one day step to go one of two directions, heaven or hell. That's all death is. It's a portal that we pass through to go either to heaven or to hell. But life is final in this sense. On this side, the doorway side, not the eternity side, but on the doorway side of the portal called death, the final chance you get to make a decision that will affect whether you go to heaven or hell, that has to be made on this side of the doorway. But we Luke 16, a rich man died. He stepped through the portal and in hell, preacher, you lift up his eyes being in torments and he gets real concerned about his eternal future too late. And he starts praying a mercy prayer. Have mercy upon me. Have mercy in Lazarus. Dip the tip of his finger in water. Cool my parched tongue. I'm tormented in this flame. And the answer he's given is, I'm sorry, that's too late. And then he gets to thinking about, you know, I, I got five brothers. So he goes from praying a mercy prayer to praying a missionary prayer. Send somebody, even this guy Lazarus, to testify to my five brothers, lest they also come to this place of torment. I don't want them coming here. Which, by the way, forever should do away with the old arrogant statement, I'm going to be in hell, we're going to have a party in hell. No, you're not. No, you're not. Sorry. They got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Oh, no, 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 no. If somebody went back from the dead. No, they won't. They won't be persuaded. Somebody did come back from the dead. His name was Jesus. They won't believe him. They won't believe Lazarus. What I'm trying to say, folk, is life's final. Because the final opportunity you get to make a decision to trust Jesus ends when you draw your last breath on this side of the doorway. By the way, Christian friend, if you've already made the choice to receive Christ, I praise God for that. But the final opportunity you get to speak a word of witness to a family member, a neighbor, a loved one, a husband, a wife, a child, a parent, final chance you get to be a witness to them, it ends when you step through the portal called death. So folk, death isn't final, but life is. The time 
of your life. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Father, would you speak to us today? Lord, my heart is so full. So full of concern. Lord, I've never been more concerned. For people who may sit in a church week after week. But Lord, they really don't know you as Savior. Father, I pray today if there's anyone like that, man, woman, young person, has never really had an encounter, a life-changing, eternity-altering encounter with Jesus Christ and salvation. Father, I pray today would be the day when they come to you and before it's too late, they'll be saved. Now, friends, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, after the 9-11-01 tragedy, my friend Niles Light, who watched what happened, Continued working for the FBI. He retired a few years after all of that. Moved just outside Quantico, Virginia. Began working as a private contractor, doing driver training for FBI agents that were in training to become full-scale agents. In addition to being a counterterrorism expert, my friend Niles was a driving instructor for the FBI as well. I rode in a Corvette with him on the New Jersey Turnpike. Nobody's going to pull him over and give him a ticket because he works for the FBI. It was a ride I will never forget. The man knows what he's doing with an automobile. But my friend Niles has become something much more since 9-11-01. He's become an outstanding, outspoken man with respect to the gospel. You hear him describe what happened on 9-11 and he weeps all the way through 20 years later. You never recover from what you watch. And he's one of the most passionate declares of the gospel I've ever met. Because he saw just a glimpse of what hell's going to be like. 2,000 plus degrees. That'll change you. Folks, I want to ask you something this morning. Do you know for sure you're saved? I'm not asking, do you think you are? Are you reasonably sure you are? I'm asking, do you know you are? Because what you're about to do in just a couple of seconds is Stake your eternal destiny on a response you're going to make. So I'm imploring you not to just casually throw your hand up and say, yeah, I'm saved. I want you to think this through. Have you really had a life-changing, eternity-altering encounter with Jesus Christ? Have you really? Do you know that you're saved, sir, ma'am? Young man, young lady, do you really know? Do you really know? If you can say, yes, Dave, I know. I know I've been saved. There's been a time in my life when I understood I was a sinner on my way to a devil's hell, but I also understood Jesus loved me. He died on an old rugged cross, shed his blood there. He was buried, rose again the third day. He did all of that. The death, burial, and resurrection, that's the gospel. He did all of that to forgive my sin. And yes, Dave, I've asked him deliberately on purpose to come into my heart and life, forgive me my sin and save me. 
And as sure as I'm sitting here in this service today, I know I've been saved. Friend, if you know that, you know that Jesus is your Savior. You don't have a doubt one about it. Dave, I know I've been saved. Would you do this without looking to see what anybody else does beside you, behind you, in front of you? If you know you've been saved, would you just lift your hand as high as you possibly can as a testimony to the fact that you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? Thank you. You may put your hand down. What an awesome sight. Second question. Is there anyone in the room today Maybe several, but is there anyone, anyone at all that would be honest enough to say, you know what, preacher, I don't know. Not really, I don't. Friend, you may have lifted your hand because you sensed other people around you doing so, but you don't really know you're going to heaven. May I ask you this? Are you not concerned about your eternal future because you need to be? David the sweet psalmist of Israel, later to become king, said this in one of the Psalms, there is but one step between me and death. There is but one step between me and death. I can drop one foot to the ground, pick up the other, and before I plant the one I've picked up, I could be in eternity. And friend, that's you. So is there anyone in the room that would be willing to say, Dave, I'm just gonna be honest with you today. I don't know for sure that I'm saved. I'm not 100% certain that Jesus is my Savior, but I'm concerned about it. And Dave, I'd like you to pray for me. And friend, I'd love to have that privilege. And I don't mean use your name in my prayer. Chances are I don't know your name, but even if I do, I would never use it in my prayer and embarrass you. But I would like to pray for you that before it's too late, you'll come to Jesus. Is there anybody like that? And right now, you'd lift your hand long enough for me to see it. And by doing that, you're saying, pray for me. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. You may put your hand down. Are there any others? I'm looking all across the room. Dave, pray for me. I'm just being honest. I don't really know. Friend, it's no shame not to know. The shame is not doing something about that. That's the eternal shame. It's no shame not to know. So is there anyone else? Dave, I'm just not sure. I don't know for sure that I'm saved. Anyone else? you'd slip your hand up long enough for me to see it before I pray. Thank you. God bless you, young man. Thank you. You can put it down. Thank you. God bless you. I appreciate that. Father, I pray you'd speak to those, Lord, who've lifted their hands and, Lord, perhaps some who should have but didn't. And I pray today would be the day, Lord Jesus, when they make the most important decision they'll ever make. And that's a decision, Lord Jesus, to invite you into their heart and life, to ask you to forgive their sins, save their soul, believing you died, buried, and rose again for them. And Lord, we'll give you glory for what you do. Now, folks, this is going to be a little different today. I just want you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Pastor Steve, thank God for you. You are my friend. You don't know how much I love and respect you. Would you mind stepping to the very back of the auditorium, right in the middle of the center aisle, right at the very back? Thank you so very much. I by no means always do what I'm about to do right now. I really don't. But I'm going to do it today because of the urgency of the moment. You'll understand over the course of the week why I sense the urgency. You really will. If you lifted your hand and by doing so were saying, Dave, pray for me, 
I want to thank you for doing that. While everyone else has their head bowed and eyes closed, and I appreciate you cooperating. If you lifted your hand and let me pray for you, could I ask you if you would just do me a simple favor? Would you just look up at me so my eyes and your eyes can meet for a second? Thanks. Were you serious about that when you lifted your hand? Were you serious? Were you serious? All right, if you were, could I ask you something? Right now, when no one's looking but me, would you be willing just to step to the back where pastor's waiting and just let him put someone with you, take a Bible and get this settled today? Bless your heart. That's right. Just step past those that are near you. That's right. God bless you for your courage. Preacher, I just don't know. It's no shame not to know. The eternal shame would be never to get it settled. Because you can know. You can know you're going to heaven. First John says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. More than you want to know, God wants you to know. Not live in doubt, but know. Know that you're saved. One final question, then I'm going to turn it over to the pastor. You guys have listened so well today. I love this church. My bride's going to be here tonight. I can't wait for her to meet you and you to meet her. I love Calvary Baptist Church. Folks, I'm going to go just this far and no further right now. But those of us that know Christ, folk, we've got to up our efforts to reach a lost world. Folk, we've got to. There's no, there's no way around that reality. If you knew what I know, you'd understand why I'm saying this. We've got to get it in gear with reaching a lost world. And as much as we're doing, we've got to up it. So I want to say to God's people a simple proposition. If God's spoken to you about upping your efforts to reach those around you in your orbit, especially your family, your friends, coworkers, neighbors, classmates, speaking up in a more deliberate, forthright, courageous, but very loving way to try to reach them with the gospel. If God's spoken to you about doing that more aggressively, as a result of what you've heard from the word today. And you'd be willing to say, Lord, if you'll help me and trust me, he will. Lord, if you'll help me, I'm gonna up my efforts dramatically to reach a lost world and tell those in my orbit who don't yet know you how they can know you. If you'd be willing to tell God that this morning and mean it, I wonder if you'd simply do this with your head bowed, your eyes closed. I wonder if you'd be willing just to stand to your feet right where you're seated and just with your head bowed, Silently but sincerely, would you tell the Lord, I'm going to up my efforts. God bless you, men and ladies. I'm going to up my efforts dramatically to reach those in my orbit who don't know you, Jesus. I'm going to tell them how they can know you. Let me put it in this way as I invite pastor to come. If you were in one of those hallways, corridors, stairwells on 9-11, and you pushed the door open on the 63rd floor and there stood a person in panicked fear. And you knew this is the only way down. Elevators will not get you out. These steps in this stairwell are it. And that is what it was that day. You'd do everything in your power, even grabbing that person on the 62nd floor and pulling them with you to get them to safety physically, right? 
Folk, we got people around us not going to burn up in a fire created by an airplane coming into a building. We got people going to go to hell. And we don't seem to be anywhere near as motivated about their eternal soul as we're about saving physical bodies. Folk, it's got to change. It's got to change. Let's ramp up our efforts together for the glory of God. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. You've listened great today, and I appreciate that. We're going to bring this thing to a close in just a moment, but before we do, I'm going to ask our personal workers if they would just tiptoe very quietly down here to the altar. I don't know who raised their hands. I wasn't looking, but there were evidently several that did. And if you're here this morning and you say, Preacher, I was one of the ones that raised my hands. Would you do this? Would you just step out right now? And we've got some folks in the front here that would love to take the Word of God and show you how you can know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven when you die. If you stood to your feet just a moment ago when Brother Dave said, let's take it to the next level. Man, I just wonder if somebody's just so passionate about that that maybe you'd go one step further and just step out from where you are and make your way to an old-fashioned altar and just seal that decision. That's right, that's right. And just seal that decision with the Lord. I don't want you to come to the altar if God's not dealing with your heart, but I would say this. There's something about sealing a decision at an old-fashioned altar before you and the Lord. There's some folks some people that you need to reach that I need to reach. I'm going to tell you something, church. Man, my heart has been stirred already. Folks are coming from all over the auditorium today. You say, preacher, what time is it? Man, who cares what time it is? We've got family members and neighbors and co-workers that are dying lost without Christ. And you know what? There's going to have to be some people and there's going to have to be a church somewhere that says, you know, I don't care about the time. I don't care about being normal and natural. We're going to have to reach a world that's lost. And somebody somewhere is going to have to step out and say, I'm willing to do more than just the normal. Yes. Heavenly Father, I pray that you're working hearts and you are working in hearts right now. Lord, thank you for the tenderness that I sense in hearts. Oh God, this nation will never have revival if Christians like us don't get a burdened heart and a soft heart and do away with our callousness and forget about the clock and forget about our schedule and forget about dinner and forget about all these other things and realize that Lord, there's an eternity Lord, there's a heaven to gain. There's a hell to shun. Father, I don't know who raised their hands. I'm thankful for the one that has responded already. But maybe there's others right now that would step out. Lord, would you give them courage right now? God, help them to understand that if they'll take the first step, you'll help them with the second one. Have your way in this invitation. Do something significant. 
And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Hey, would you come? Would you come? Especially if you're here and you need to be saved. We've got some folks here that would love to pray with you. Amen. Folks are getting some help. Wonderful. This is, this is our fourth quarter. This is our, this is our touchdown right here. Would you come while we wait? God's dealing. Lord, I'm not interested in leaving the same. I want to go home different. I want to go home with a new fire. A new zeal. A new passion. Hey, if we can pray with you about anything at all. Preacher, I am saved. I raised my hand about that a moment ago when Brother Kissler asked about that. But man, I've got such a heavy burden right now in my life. It seems like it's 10,000 pounds. Preacher, honestly, I don't know how much longer I can go. Do you think there's anybody that would maybe pray with me about that? Man, we'd love to pray with you about that. Would you come? Would you come? If you're watching by way of live stream today, we're so glad to have you watching. There's a number on the bottom of your screen. And if you're watching by way of live stream and you say, Brother Pope, I couldn't be there today, but I was watching and God's dealing with my heart and I need to be saved. Would you call that number right now on the bottom of your screen? 704-327-5662. We have some folks that are waiting right now beside the phone. They're waiting to take your call. If you're watching this broadcast today and you say, Pastor, I don't think I can make it another day. I've even contemplated suicide. Would, would, would you do this? Would you call that number right now? We've got someone that loves you very much and they want to pray with you. They want to try to be a help to you. Call that number right now. We're going to sing a chorus today before we go. Invitation is still wide open today. These, our personal workers are still here in the front. And if you need to come, step out and come on. Man, we're rooting for you. And we would love to pray with you today. But we're going to sing this chorus a time or two before we leave today. Lift up your voices. Let's sing it, Calvary. Sing it once more, lift it up. Here we go, ready? Jesus, use me, and oh Lord, don't refuse me. Sure. 
and new. Sing it, church. And even though it's humble, Lord, help my will to crumble. Though the cost be great, I'll work for God bless you. Hey, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to shake hands just for a few moments. If you're in here today and, and, and you say, Pastor, I've got a need, I've got a need, listen, hang around. And uh, myself, I'll be in the back. My wife, will, 